0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Abigail Marsh, who is a professor of psychology at Georgetown University and also the author of a book called Fear Factor how one emotion connects altruists, psychopaths, and everyone in between. Welcome, Abby. Thank you for having me. I found this book absolutely fascinating. Psychopathy is something we're all interested in. Altruism is something we're all interested in. And to think that there is a sort of single bullet explanation right i mean the book reads almost like a detective novel in a way because you kind of unfold these different layers of how the research unfolded and it starts with some personal stories that inspired you right so you were on the receiving end of both a very altruistic act where someone rescued you from a freeway accident and also from a what you might think of as a psychopathic act where someone just punched you in the face right and you come back to those two stories and I think that as a social psychologist, you're a little bit different because most social psychologists are focused on environmental variables, right? They're focused on context. And as you argue in the book, this is primarily because it's easier to adjust, right, the environment in the experimental setting. And then you can't really adjust for individual differences. You can't breed people that have different physiological characteristics. And so do we overemphasize the social context? in practice simply because it's easier to work with in the lab? Should we be spending more time thinking about individual differences? Or is that kind of a waste of time? Because once you've identified these individual differences, there's not a whole lot you can do about them. The book is very optimistic in a lot of ways, because you talk about how generally we're these wonderfully kind people, which I love that aspect. But when you do identify psychopaths, You don't really offer a recipe for how to fix them or manage them.
1: Oftentimes, especially when it comes to titles of journals and scholarly organizations, personality and social psychology go together. So there's the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology and Societies, et cetera. But in actuality, they're really different topics, right? What makes people different from one another and what are situational variables that act on people in fairly similar ways. And my PhD is actually in social psychology. And so my doctoral training was in the power of the situation to change people's behavior. And I just wasn't very impressed by the power of at least the kind of situations that you're able to ethically create in a modern psychology laboratory to meaningfully explain the kind of altruism I was interested in. Not giving somebody 50 cents in a computer task, but why would you risk your life to save somebody else's? Because of course, again, this was to me, obviously a personal question because somebody had done that for me. But in general, I think the most interesting questions are the ones that baffle the mind. And we know that people risk their lives to save others by the hundreds or thousands probably every year. And yet it makes no sense in terms of what we're told about human nature and basic biology. And so to me, that's a meaty question. And that's a question I want to answer. And there is no laboratory experiment that can give you an answer. And Interestingly, and you're probably familiar with this crisis of replication that happened in psychology maybe two decades ago is when it really sort of took that. A lot of laboratory psychology tasks were not really finding real effects and you couldn't replicate them and it wasn't clear how much explanatory value they had. And that, in psychology, that crisis was really centered on social psychology. And interestingly, personality psychology was almost not involved at all. Now, I didn't know any of this at the time because I didn't get my degree in personality psychology. I had to kind of discover personality on my own when I got a little frustrated with, at the time, the methods that were being used in social psychology. Now, I will say, I'll be the first to say now that I think social psychology, to its great credit, has totally transformed as a field today. Really frustrated with it at the time. And to my great surprise, discovered that actually individual differences seem to be explaining more of the variation that we see in the world in altruism, in particular, these really extraordinary forms of altruism that I think present one of the most interesting puzzles I can imagine. And so my desire is to try to explain it. Why does this happen? And I do think that there's, the average person is tempted to explain the level of the situation because that is what explains our own behavior. And in fact, even extraordinary altruists, why did you do this? They refer to the situation. They say, I did this because the situation arose, because I discovered that there are 100,000 people on the waiting list for a kidney, because I heard of somebody saving their life. But that's normal.
0: But with describing others, they tend to point to their personality, right?
1: Exactly. It's a really interesting, and interestingly, this is a social psychological finding. It's a really interesting asymmetry is that we explain our own behavior with reference to our situation. We explain other people's behavior with the differences between them. And in reality, it is true that you can expose a thousand people to the same news story about somebody who is, you know, was dying of kidney disease, and then an altruistic kidney donor volunteered to save their life. And, you know, of those thousand people, on average, zero will say, I could do that. hundred thousand people need a kidney. But if you expose hundred thousand people to that message, a couple will say, really? We all can live with one kidney and we all have two and anybody can donate. I could do that. I'm sure it's simpler than just some people are like this and some people are not. It's absolutely simpler than that. And we know it's simpler than that because you can see these interesting differences over time in altruism, which means that there are situational variables that are changing altruism, but they're a little bit elusive exactly what they are. Psychology is the possibility of changing people. It's being able to create the behaviors that we want to see in the world. And personality psychology, you're right. It doesn't leave you with much of an actionable answer, at least on the surface of it. But I have faith that if we really do understand the mechanisms behind altruism, that will lead, and I really think I'm getting closer to understanding the ways that we can nudge the behavior, even if it's not by studying the interventions themselves yet.
0: We mentioned other dichotomy, and this comes from Dan Wegner. There's these agents and patients. We look at agents, the people who are taking action, we tend to focus on, well, what are they thinking, right? But when we focus on the patients, the people who are impacted, we focus on their feelings, right? And so I think part of what you're doing is you're trying to dig deeper into these agents and understand them in a deeper way, right? These people who are taking these altruistic actions, people who are taking these psychopathic actions, like what's inside their heads, what are they feeling, and what are they feeling about other people's feelings?
1: i thought about that way before. And Dan Wagner is certainly one of my former graduate advisors is somebody who really explored this interesting property of moral dyads that when somebody is an agent, a doer, whether good or bad, we tend to focus more on their cognitive function, the processes by which they generate behavior, their high level, very human cognitive processes. Mm-hmm. Whereas when somebody is the object of a moral act, we focus more on their feelings. But <laughs> I guess I never thought about it this way, but you know, one of the things I am interested in is the feelings, the emotions of the moral agents, both the good and the bad ones. Mostly because I think, and this is very much in line with a lot of social psychology research, I think a lot of the time we have more faith in our voluntary willed action, or we have more faith in the idea that our actions are voluntary and willed, rather than often driven by forces that we're not fully appreciating under the surface. I think that's true for everybody. I think it's at least partly true for altruists as well, because they're fundamentally just people.
0: Well, I think another aspect of what you're doing is that your attention to what we might think of as undesirable dysfunctional behavior with an interest in the maybe more functional, hyperfunctional, pro-social. When you look at the Milgram experiments and you spend some time talking about Milgram and also I think Batson, who deserves to be better known, but A lot of us tend to focus on the fact that subjects would obey the experimenter and impose shocks on people. But what's less well understood, most people didn't, right? Or a large number of people didn't. And there's this tension between compassion and obedience. And I mean, is it really just a half full, half empty discussion? Is it just emphasis? Or what can we conclude about people's capacity for compassion?
1: I have to say, those Milgram videos were so brilliant. I think I respect Miller more every time I watch, and I've watched it many times because I show it every year when I teach introductory psychology, I gain new levels of understanding every time I watch that video, which any, I'm sure, psychology professor has seen also many times, and most psychology students have seen more than once also, but it really bears deep watching and really thinking about it because, you know, like most people, my initial conclusions from watching the film the first couple of times was, oh my gosh, isn't this terrible that so many people would be led to shock a stranger until they thought that they had a heart attack and died. And of course that was Milgram's point. And I, I love that he pulled psychiatrists before he started the study to ask them to predict how many people would continue shocking a stranger up until the, the point of what they thought was death. And they predicted a fraction of 1% of people. And of course they were completely wrong, It's we'll leave that prediction lie in terms of the accuracy of the experts. And of course, as we know, experts are often inaccurate. What's so interesting is the way that they frame it in the video, right? The first several people you go through the Milgram study, in fact, refuse. And they're just find them all so endearing. They all vary a little bit, but they get a couple shocks into where they hear the learner shouting, they think, through the wall. And they, you know, they sort of react in different ways, but eventually they all say, I'm not going to keep doing this. And you really see these people saying, this guy is hurt in there and you're telling me to keep going. And what you see is a tension between two really prosocial motives, right? There's not an antisocial motive in the bunch. They're caught between two actual quite morally admirable goals. One, compassion for the stranger, which again, economic theories and biological theories of human nature tell us we shouldn't even have that much, right? Who's the stranger to you? You know, you've never met this person. There's no reciprocity involved. They're not your relative. And so I think people it's useful to take a step back and realize that we all start with the assumption that these men in the study should just automatically not want to hurt a stranger that they've never met before. And and when you're tempted to think people are so awful, remember, we all do start with that assumption that nobody wants to just cause a stranger to suffer for no reason. And in fact, they didn't. But they were caught between that moral motive and the moral motive to try to do the right thing, to find yourself in this totally new context, Here's an authority figure who you trust It's a Yale professor or experimenter, and you think this person knows what they're doing. I'm here for science. We know that the average research participant mm-hmm. is more altruistic than the average person. There's really interesting studies on that. Most people who participate in research are trying to help science. They're, do- they're doing something yeah. they think is a good thing.
0: I know. I love how your kidney donors like all signed up for the experiments, right? <laughs>
1: I really think I'm just the luckiest person in the world to get to do the research I do for many reasons, but one of which is just the deep, profound pleasure of having worked with altruistic kidney donors for so many years and gotten to know them as people, of course, and just appreciating how very helpful they are, and they're wanting to help me get my research done. But I think all research participants, especially in a really complicated experiment like the Milgram study, they're trying to help. And so they're caught between trying to be agreeable and do the right thing in the social context and compassion for this victim and the learner. And what's so interesting is that even the people who go all the way through the experiment are just sweating buckets and they're engaging in all these regulator behaviors, all these self-touch pawing at their own faces and squeezing their thighs. And like, they're really, really uncomfortable because they realize they're caught on the horns of a dilemma. And so I think the real message of the Milgram studies is not that people are horrible. In fact, everybody in that video is trying to do what they think is the right thing. It's just they're drawing different conclusions about what's the right thing. Some of them say, I have a deep moral principle not to cause, and I think it's probably the logical principle, like not to cause innocent people harm. I'm not going to do it. And other people must, you know, I think on balance have a slightly stronger principle. I don't like to make people angry. I don't like to break contracts. Like I said, I was going to do this. I said I was going to be in this experiment and I think I should probably do it. And everybody's trying to follow their own moral compass as best they can.
0: Now, of course, we can't run these experiments anymore because, you know, IRB. But but what I love about Batson's Mm -hmm. experiment is that he kind of gave people a way out where they could satisfy both at the same time by switching places Mm -hmm. with the learner. Tell us a bit about that. And why is that not better known, that whole field of research that Batson worked on?
1: I think that, you know, we all maybe should take the lesson that we all need to, you know, have professionally shot movies of our experiments. I wish, I profoundly wish that there were, that there was good video archival footage of Batson's research. Because I do think they're really incredible studies. Um, and it was, you know, a whole line of research, much like one study. But um, many studies that um, Batson ran were studied, um came into,, you know, believed that it was sort of random chance who was going to be taking. Um, and the other, uh, or, you know, part of what she would be doing is was getting shocks. And then at some point as they're watching her over video footage, she says something about, I think it was having gotten thrown from a horse and hit a wire fence. And, had you know, it it hurt her in a way that, you know, maybe so it was a story as to why maybe it would be risky. Can the, you know, well-trained return and give participants the option to trade places with her and receive the rest of these assistance? Um, and this is where you see the individual differences kick in, which, you know, clearly there in the Milgram study, too. And, and I love it talks about the different forces pushing and pulling of people's behaviors. And so uh, our compassion for people suffering is a field of force. And some people are more sensitive to that force than others. And people who have psychopathic traits, obviously, are minimally sensitive to people suffering, or at least, they, um, but we're sensitive to the norms and the request of authority figures. And And the Batson study, what was so interesting is that people had um, take over the role of getting shocked or not. And, and in the Batson studies, um, I believe this was one where they were asked to empathize, mm-hmm. to really think about her experiences. And in general, when you're able to uh, focus on the emotions that another person is feeling, and then that person is going to help um interestingly, more recent research by, for example, Michael McCullough suggests that's probably the baseline response. like we normally respond, especially when we can really vividly see and hear people as distress. It's normal to have an empathic mm-hmm. reaction. And then if we're asked to distance ourselves, which Batson's other condition would sometimes ask to do, where you're just asked to focus on technical details of um, instead of the person's emotions, then you're much less likely to, to help.
0: Now, in both of these studies, I think the participants could not see the learner, they could just hear the learner, right? And so maybe this can take us to just the punchline of your book, which I think was called The Most Unintuitive Psychological Finding of 2007, which has to do with people's ability to recognize the look of fear in in people's faces. So this seems to be a predictor, or at least an identifier, of one's psychopathic or altruistic capacity. So first of all, how did you kind of narrow in on this specific marker for this particular type of empathy, right? How did you ultimately, you know, I always love hearing the kind of aha moment, like, you know, where you, you talked about it. I don't don't remember in the book learning exactly how you were able to narrow down this and isolate this as the key.
1: Great question. Um, I was interested in fearful expression already because uh, as part of church. Um, I had done a series of studies looking at why the fearful facial expression took particular form. You know, why does fear look the way it does with the big eyes and the raised brow through like little round mouth area? It could look anyway, right? It could look bad, and it doesn't look like that. And, and I just had the, you know, it's just like things. Um, I had the good fortune to be doing in the lab of um, like a Dartmouth where I was having people pose emotional facial expressions for expression. Right. And, oh my gosh, getting people to post these impressions is so hard. Like, most people really can voluntarily make the the emotions, which I think is so interesting.
0: Actors are good, right?
1: Yes, yes. And because they're good at, at generating the feeling yeah. inside themselves. And so, that, you know, that's method acting is you you feel the feeling and then you can make it on your face. There are also other ways, you know. Some And some people just have better voluptiles than others. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just like some people can flare their nostrils and some can't. Some people can, you know, voluntarily give their eyes that or their eyebrows. that. Is there
0: a difference? Can you recognize fake fear versus in smiling, right? Ekman talks about yeah. the fake smile versus the real smile. Yeah. Is there like a fake fear response versus a response?
1: So, you know, what's so interesting is I actually think the fake smile, the non-Duchene smile that Emily talks about, rap, um, and I only discovered this relatively recently. It was the research of a, a scientist named Aaron here up in Canada who search on, um, non Duchesne smiles as social, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're all not the kind of smile of like, oh, a puppy or. A smile you get for, It's a smile
0: you get from a flight attendant or. Right? Yeah.
1: But that, yes. But for a very particular reason, they're the smile you get is saying, I, I'm trying yeah. to have a positive social interaction. I, my I, it's sort of like my ire is to have like a, like yeah. a sort of harmonious and that's actually really important. And it turns out that those smiles do a really good predicting the um, sort of harmony mm. and smoothness of social interactions between strangers is this very regulated exchange. Of
0: yeah, messages. there's the hard to fake, but then there's the fakeable, but fakeable messages are still oh, messages, right?
1: Yes, yes, yes. yes. And I think, they're, I think they're actually really important smiles that, that say, I feel happy, about, I feel glad to be in this interaction. Mm-hmm. I'm acting with you. I'm, I'm pleasant, you know? And so it's like just, I don't know, message that, you know, isn't one hundred percent correct, but yeah. the meaning is. Well, it's anyways. like extending
0: your hand for a handshake, right? That's not a. Yeah. It doesn't tell you anything about the internal emotional state, but it does tell you about their exactly. desire to cooperate, exactly. right?
1: Exactly, and so there's a. I think all that, um, like posed fish, other kinds, can have a similar quality. You know, like for example, let's say you're interacting with somebody and you're. Mad- you know, yeah. like that's not really what sad looks like. Like I'm being sad, right? right? It's like, I'm telling you like, please don't be mad at me. I feel bad about what I did, even though it's not like genuine per se. And so I think there's something like a little similar to that about facial uh-huh. expressions. And they, they're they carrying a meaning that still signals I'm vulnerable and need help. Or kind of hard to fake, you know, like uh, true fearful is very difficult to fake. Um, most people can't make those facial
0: movements voluntarily. The fearful look is also the look of submission, right? And submission can be willed, even if it cannot. And,
1: and you know what? There's so many interesting social behaviors that are kind of on the line between voluntary and involuntary. Yeah. Like, they often happen, you know, like breathing. Like, you can breathe involuntarily, but you can also voluntarily control it. And I think a lot of really important qualities. Oh, and anyway, so I was, I was doing this facial expression study at um, Dr and I was in a, a seminar with him where I was reading on the um, facial changes that accompany aging from infancy to, and you know, the, uh, of the going from infancy to adulthood are basically when you're an infant, you have a much sort of bigger mm-hmm. forehead, smaller um, eyebrows and much bigger eyes compared to your lower face. And I was like trying to make people look fearful Which is such a struggle. And I'm reading about what infant faces look like. I'm like, oh, basically, what I'm trying to do when I get people to look fearful is look like a baby. You know, make those eyes like squinch, like make your, you know, sort of like lower jaw look small and round. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And the reason I picked up on I love non human um, animal behavior. I've taken lots of classes in non human animal behavior. I'm a big animal lover myself. Had things gone a different way, I could have easily have been a researcher who studied, well, primates or something else. Um, And I wish that more psychologists had a lot more grounding in animal behavior, because I think, for example, it's just especially when it comes to moral type behaviors, we get real thoughts about what we think should be happening or we should feel or we should do. And I think it's a lot easier to be objective when you're studying animal behavior. In any case, I know a lot about animal behavior in terms of like dominance and submission cues. And so I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Other animals when they are submissive, uh, sort of automatically imitate infant cues wolves are the perfect we all have dogs you know what do they do when they're being fearful and submissive like please don't hurt me and they're signaling it right um themselves look small they they pin their ears which is how puppies look they um they lick the jaws of the other wolf which is what puppies do to get adults to regurgitate for them they whine voices They just, they, for all the world, try to look like a puppy. And because, of course, in a social animal, what that stimulates, luckily, is this, like, inhibition of aggression and provision of care. I was like, oh, this all makes perfect sense. Like, that's what fearful expressions are doing. This is why they look the way they do, is because they're trying to make your face look more like an infant's face. And I have to say, one of the proudest moments of my research career was, you know, when I was an undergraduate is when I brought this idea for an undergrad thesis to Bob Clack. I said, Okay, your seminar and this, you know, research assistantship I have, I figured something out. Fear will do because you're 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 making your face look more babyish and which will help elicit depression. And and again, and I, I, I absolutely adore and have so much for Bob he, I'm just I'm really grateful um that he was my undergraduate. But what I love is that um when I first brought that to him, his quote what he said about it is I it was a head that yeah. seemed way out yeah. way out. Oh, yeah?
0: The best ideas start off that way.
1: <laughs> like, I look back now I'm like, what if an undergrad came to me with an idea? Anyways, but to his unending credit, he let me run the studies and I was studies and indeed, you know, they weren't studies, but you know, longingly, it was obvious yeah. that, that people judge fearful expressions and respond to them as though they were infantile faces. So then, fast forward to career, um, and I was actually doing a study on something else. I think it was for my, it was I had an RSA. And I was trying to look at gender differences, actually, in sensitivity. It's a the chase. There's not much. Uh, women are a little bit more sensitive to most of these. And, uh, but I also, one of the measures that I was taking as a dependent variable was a very sort of minor measure of pro-social behavior. with mm-hmm. was um, responding somebody's feedback. You know, they, they were going to gack and did, did you, you know, err on the nice side or on the kind of mean side? And, you know, it wasn't a great dependent variable. But again, the study, the one, you know, Get all my data, look at my results, and I just was looking at the correlation between the ability to recognize all the basic facial expressions. There was an emotion recognition test. There was gen- nothing, you know, <laughs> the men and the women recognized the facial expressions roughly equally, and then this measure of prosociality. And I just happened to notice that the relationship between the ability to recognize the fearful expressions across participants' emotional outcome is like I don't know, it was a correlation like point six, which obviously was a little bit inflated because that is often what happens. But I was like, whoa, that's Really strange. That's, like, that's a and it was beautiful. End of the scatter plot is beautiful. Like it wasn't. Um, always look at your scatter plots. That's my advice for all uh, upcoming researchers: is never trust the R like butter. And you know, and I, I, you know, I was like made sure I understood what I was looking. I was like, that's so weird and that, and but that I kind of oh, this makes sense. Like if if we think they didn't care, well, maybe people who are recognizing it are somehow responding to her internally, and and maybe they're more. They, they can't be working. I don't know. I was sort of struggling to put it together. And then, of course, you never stop there. And I ran a couple of, including a version of Batson's study where the dependent variable was actually offering to give money or time volume to help a woman who was dire straits. Yet again, you know, the, the strongest predictor of how helpful people were in the lab was how good they were. And, you know, helping somebody they can't see, right? A disembodied voice they hear on the radio, that tendency was predicted by how well they recognize fear in a separate task. And so, you know, I put all these studies together as part of my dissertation, and that, you know, when I've run that study many times, and it, it's very reliable effect. People definitely report feeling more compassion when they're subliminally primed with fear. And so, put it all together, and fear is, is fe- recognizing when other people are afraid is a really strong individual difference predictor of altruism. I published it, and then somebody's like, "That is the most unintuitive
0: finding." <laughs> Well, it is. It it is because I think for before your work, most people would say that the fear expression is it's it's like an alarm call. Right. And you're sending a message to the rest of the community. Hey, there's a snake. Everybody clear out. But if that were the case, then the folks who observe it would run for the hills. Right. And I think you show that it actually you get the opposite result where people are actually inclined to come towards the person who is experiencing this visible emotion, right? It's crazy that it took until 2007 or some for people to really understand that because it seems to be, once you describe it, I think we all observe it and we see it and we understand it
1: yeah no i think i understand where the original theory came from you can actually trace it through the literature and it actually came i think from the neuroimaging literature but also partly the physiology literature way back in the day when we were in the very beginnings of doing functional brain imaging research like there were very limited options for what you could do in a scanner those days but one of the very earliest tasks that was done was showing people pictures and different facial expressions and very early on it was one of the most replicable findings in neuroimaging is that if you show people fearful facial expressions, you'll see an increase in amygdala responses in the scanner. And what did people know that the amygdala is involved in, and obviously that fear is not the only thing that it does, but it is very important for fear to a degree, to a greater degree than for other emotions. It's necessary for certain kinds of fear related outcomes. In any case, and it was a standard sort of reverse inference that was pretty common in those days, and then sometimes still happens and you have to draw some conclusions. So it's not like I really fault anybody. But unfortunately, the conclusion was drawn. that was drawn was, well, the amygdala responds to scary things like threats, which it does. The amygdala responds to fearful expressions, ergo, fearful expressions are threats. And again, if you knew the non-human animal literature, you would never draw that conclusion, right? Because that is not what other, sometimes other animals use fear signals as like when a deer raises its tail and makes a white tail, that's a sign to scatter to other deer. But the fearful expression is not that kind of cue. It's much more akin to the way that, for example, wolves respond in sort of submission situations. It's an appeasement cue, not a threat cue. And so then the first kind of wrinkle with this hypothesis that fear is threatening came when Van showed people angry expressions in the scanner, which is an obvious threat, right? I am threatening you if I'm mad at you. And there is no amygdala response reliably to angry expressions. There's some noise in the data. In general, the amygdala is much more responsive to fear than to angry expressions. And so it's like, well, that's weird. like. Any expressions are clearly a threat. That's what that expression means. But the amygdala responds more to fear, and so then there was this complicated ex- explanation related: to fear is an ambiguous threat because it's not clear what the source of the threat is. And it's like, wait a minute, you guys! If somebody's looking at you with a fearful expression, they're telling you, "I'm afraid of you." <laughs> That's not that ambiguous. And again, if you look at the non-human animal literature, it's crystal clear. What a fearful expression directed at another person means. It's don't hurt me. Please help me.
0: Most conflicts result in something other than a fight, right? I mean, we pay attention to the fights, but most conflicts, not just for humans, but other animals, whenever there's usually some kind of agonistic display, and then one person's like, all right, I give up. And that usually then everybody goes their separate ways. Now, that's not what happens when you've got psychopaths. And you've done this work with psychopaths. Now, in the book, you talk about it's a little scary. You walk into a room with a psychopath but your first encounters with psychopaths were were very surprising to you because they seem to be such normal nice friendly people could you talk a bit about your work with psychopaths and also you said that people kids with bad behavior so first of all you're not supposed to call kids psychopaths right and the dsm-5 doesn't even have a psychopath as a category right but kids who are poorly behaved they could be psychopaths or they could be almost like I don't know the opposite like these emotionally reactive kids. What's the key difference here?
1: Great question. Yeah, I'll clarify that the most of the work I've done and people who have clinical levels of psychopathy is with kids and you're 100% correct, you definitely do not call children psychopaths. I've actually moved away from calling anybody a psychopath the same way that we, you know, now it's funny because of course that's the title of my book. <laughs> But in the years since then, I've decided, like, we don't refer to people as other kinds of disorders. And of course, psychopathy is not a disorder that makes anybody feel compassion for the people with it. I, it has all the hallmarks of a psychological disorder. And so let's just treat it like we would any other psychological disorder in terms of how we talk about it and where it comes from. Yeah. So the reason I ended up doing research with people with psychopathy is because when I was trying to understand this unintuitive finding that people who are good at recognizing fear are very altruistic in the lab at least in these small ways I was able to measure, which again were not that satisfying, which is why I do the research I do now. I was trying to make heads or tails of it and you know it was so hard to do literature reviews in those days, going to physical libraries and flipping through indexes and things of actual books in the stacks. <laughs> it's so hard to even imagine now. But anyhow, the body of research that actually made my findings make sense was a whole body of research by James Blair mostly and some others showing that people who were psychopathic have these very callous, remorseless, cold, unloving personalities are really bad at recognizing other Mm. people's fear, like really bad at it. In fact, my favorite story about this, I think it was in the book, was my colleague, Jesse Biding, who has also worked with James, was testing adult psychopathic prisoners with psychopathy in a prison in the UK on their ability to recognize different emotional facial expressions. And one of the psychopathic men she was testing missed every single facial expression of fear, which is pretty bad, even for somebody who's psychopathic. And he gets apparently to the very last expression, fearful expression in the set, as Essie tells it and says, I don't know what that expression is called, but I know that's what people look like right before you stab them. That is just <laughs> such a revealing wow. quote, right? Because what, he, what is he saying? He's saying, oh yeah, I've seen that face before. I know I've seen it. And I've seen that face in a situation where somebody thought they were about to die. And these are not subtle, fearful expressions in the Ackman mm-hmm. set, right? That's what she was using. And they are big caricature facial expressions, but they're very easy to interpret, which is why we use them. But this guy couldn't interpret any of them, even though he was like, yeah, if somebody thinks they're about to die and they look like that, what would you call that space? Mm-hmm. That is a really profound emotional and empathic blindness, I think. Mm-hmm. It really is. And anyways, and obviously that's just a story, but we have lots of empirical evidence now to show that people with psychopathy are really bad at recognizing what other people are afraid. And the reason we think that is, is because they don't feel fear strongly themselves. Fearlessness is a core part of the psychopathic personality And so the idea is if you don't really know what fear feels like, and some people with psychopathy report not ever feeling fear, you don't have the empathic reaction to it in the brain that I think is what allows you to then identify the emotion that you're witnessing in somebody else. And I discovered this body of research, made my dissertation make sense, and had the unbelievable good fortune to then discover that James was hiring postdocs the next year. And so I went to the NIH for my postdoctoral research fellowship and got to work with a group we started working with adults. That was hard. Recruiting for psychopathic adults is really difficult, as you might imagine. We were looking for people
0: like, probably don't have their own magazines no. <laughs> you can advertise in. <laughs> no. Facebook exactly. groups, we're psychopaths united. No.
1: <laughs> we were basically recruiting in parole offices, and you can't put up a poster that's like, "Are you psychopathic?" But you ask about other criteria. But the problem is that these men were like real tough cookies, as you might imagine. I mean, they frightened me. There was the. There was one man I remember in particular who just, I've never seen a face that looked so reptilian as this man's face before. And he was somebody who would hit people over the head with pipes and bats and stuff just to mug them. I mean, he was on probation. He was a free man. But like it was me and one other very small postdoc in the basement of the NIH doing these scans. And I was like, this is very scary work. And it's very difficult. People who are psychopathic aren't that great at showing up when they're supposed to show up. And it just it was a really difficult study to run. We had to give up. But luckily, we were also recruiting kids who are much, I think, better research participants for psychopathy research for many reasons, one of which is that they're in the care of their parents who can make sure they show up on time and make sure they show up ready to do the study. They haven't had the rough life experiences that many adults with severe psychopathy have had years of substance use, years of institutionalization that are not, don't do kind things to the brain. I had the incredibly good fortune to study dozens of adolescents, mostly who had psychopathic personalities, and discover that they really are, really are not what most people think they are. For example, there was a boy I described in the book who outwardly looked a little scary. He went out of his way to look a little scary. He liked to dress in a way that was intimidating, very really tall. We had kind of a when he walked through the halls of the NIH he had this kind of flat expression he would wear on his face and he, he had a really difficult upbringing like uh, unbelievably challenging upbringing and very hard experiences and was hardened by it had been shot at had shot other people told incredible stories of the various acts of delinquency he'd engaged in and yet the more we got to know him the more it was clear that was all of that was not who he was in his core and mm-hmm. which we discovered when we tried to scan his brain for the first time and he had come with a guardian that day because his mother had very serious psychological problems and couldn't come. He got more and more nervous as it got closer to doing the scan. We had him in the room, we were explaining how to do it, making sure he didn't have any metal in his pockets, the, all the usual rundown. And I was really used to working with kids at that point. And most kids, they're fine. So it's pretty rare for kids to get super nervous but in the lead up to the scan who don't have actual anxiety disorders. And he just kept asking more and more questions. And pretty soon it was clear these were delay tactics. And after a while, we were like, are you going to be able to it's time to go to do the scan, and he was like, "I can't do it. I can't do it." And we're like, "What?" He was like, "I just want my mom." Like, oh my gosh, this whole time, you really had us thinking that you were this really tough fourteen-year-old. And he's, "I'm so sorry, guys. I really thought I could do it. I really wanted to do it." And he gave us these big hugs with his skinny arms, and like, I just, I still remember that hug very fondly. He just, I think about him all the time. And that is not a psychopathic kid. But of course, he probably is what comes to at least some people's minds when they think of a psychopathic kid. Whereas the kids that I worked with who really were a psychopathic, often I tell people all the time, I'm like, if I hadn't known what these kids were doing behind the scenes, I would have happily invited them to babysit my children. You know, I had no idea. You can't tell. And that's true of adults with psychopathy too, in general. Like that the man I was describing to you who had this sort of reptilian. Um, was very, very unusual for somebody who's psychopathic. In general, that is the thing about people who are psychopathic. The famous book first written to introduce the concept of psychopathy to the world was called The Mask of Sanity by Herbie Cluckley. It's a fantastic book. If you have not read it, and it describes how people who were psychopathic look on the outside like incredibly personable, functional, agreeable, very ordinary or a little better than ordinary people. But that outward appearance masked these unbelievably profound emotional and social deficits. And the kids I saw were great examples of that. They seemed so personable and cute and winning and sometimes like very mature. And then you'd hear about these awful things that they were doing behind the scenes. Horrible acts of violence, their whole family living in fear of them, like smearing their feces on the walls and rage and like running like loan shark operations out of their bedroom. Really incredible stories.
0: But it's a different type of rage, right? So you talk about some of these experiments where you could create rage, right, through electric impulses to the brain, both for animals and humans, right? But this rage is different from what the psychopaths do, right? It's not like undirected. People understand where to put it. And so talk about this thing called the violence inhibition mechanism. And this seems to be disabled in the psychopaths, but is not completely disabled in people with other kinds of disorders. Can you talk a bit about that? What exactly is this violence inhibition mechanism?
1: Yeah. So the violence inhibition mechanism is a phenomenon or a theory by James Blair, my postdoctoral mentor, who is now at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. And the idea is that in typical people, the amygdala is a key part of the brain that during development is neurobiologically prepared to respond to other people's distress. And to learn from other people's distress, such that when you learn that a particular behavior results in another person looking highly distressed, for example, afraid, you very quickly learn not to do that thing again. That's the beginnings of conscience. I did this thing because I wanted to, right? I don't know. I took my friend or I threatened them maybe because I wanted something or I hit them. I hit my little friend on the playground. Most children hurt somebody, at least on accident. At some point, and then you cause that person to look very distressed, and you link your behavior to that stress cue. It can often be one trial learning. So I won't do that again. I don't want to make people feel that way. And the idea is that in people with psychopathy, which is a developmental disorder. So I actually think it's more, it's not like autism in the way that it manifests, right? People who are autistic are not psychopathic at all. So I want to make that clear. But I think most people now understand that autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder, it results from some innate differences in the way that people develop. It's a spectrum so that many people on the autism spectrum, very functional, live great lives, flourish. But then you have a subset of people with very severe autism spectrum traits who really do not really need quite a bit of intervention to help them function well in the world. And I think of psychopathy the same way. They end up on a very different developmental trajectory in terms of their brain development early in life Many people with these traits can go on to live pretty productive lives and flourish, but a subset of them really don't. And we need to develop better screening tools and better interventions to help set them on a track to prevent them from causing other people misery as they develop. And the reason that they cause other people misery is because they don't have that response to other people's distress. Whatever the amygdala is doing, when it sees somebody in distress, it's not telling them, don't do that again. And in fact, what they're really focusing on is the reward that they get by causing somebody else distress, oh, now I got what I wanted. I'm now I'm the socially dominant person, or they gave me the thing that I wanted. Or there are ways that people can use aggression to achieve selfish goals, and people with psychopathy, because they're pretty impervious to others' distress, learn to use it as a tool.
0: Now, these altruistic people that you examined, right, so you ran them through the same tests, you did the same fMRI on them, and so forth. Now, to be clear, the altruists you're interested in studying, these are not folks that are engaging in kin selection type orient They're not doing tit for tat. These are people that do things like give away kidneys anonymously, right? There's no benefit that could possibly flow back to these people. This is kind of a hard thing to explain through an evolutionary lens, right? And Charles Darwin would struggle with this. Tell us a bit about what's going on here. And one of the things that I guess it's in many ways optimistic, it's great to know that there are these people out there, but in some sense it's a little bit pessimistic because it seems to be suggesting that the extent to which you are going to be altruistic is the extent to which you, I guess, in a way identify, right, or can feel very strongly what the other person is feeling
1: yeah especially when it comes to their distress people who are very altruistic are not particularly good at empathizing with other people's anger interestingly they seem a little worse at it they're less sensitive to people's anger which i think is interesting but yeah so the people i study are people i call extraordinary altruists which means that they engage in acts of altruism that are risky or costly non-normative so they're not just following a social convention
0: like the guy who rescued you from your car right this person Acted almost instinctively. There's no deliberation, I don't think, on the part of this rescuer, right?
1: Yeah, I don't think there could have been time. I was on a freeway. I had my car had spun out on the freeway and left me facing backward in the fast lane and I there was no shoulder. So I was just stranded there on this overpass. And he pulled over as he was approaching my car. He couldn't have had more than a second to make his decision. And then he ran across the freeway to rescue me. And no, I think it had to have been completely instinctive on his part, which is not to at all devalue what he did. The reason I think it was instinctive for him, as for all the altruists I study, is because it's consistent with their core values. They make an instinctive decision to help because they sincerely value other people's welfare and sincerely want to help them. That is the only reason he would make that decision so fast. And when I started doing my own research, I didn't know of any easy way to recruit heroic rescuers like him. I now do, but at the time, I didn't know how. And so I instead recruited altruistic kidney donors for my research who do something just as costly? I think they would say no. But I think objectively what they had done of giving up a healthy internal organ to a stranger, I think most people would consider costly, not to mention all the time and effort enough and often money that people must expend to donate a kidney. And they know that their kidney, for non-directed donors at least, to most of whom are my research participants, they give a kidney anonymously. So they know that they may never know the identity of the person who received their kidney. They can't possibly gain anything concrete from it other than knowing that they saved a person's life, or at least did their best to try to do so. And what I hypothesized about these altruists, based on all the laboratory research I'd done up until that point, was that they would look the opposite of people who were psychopathic. So from my dissertation research, I knew that at least in the lab, people who were more altruistic are better at recognizing others' fear. I knew that when you look at clinically sort of pathological levels of low empathy, you see a lot of difficulty recognizing other people's fear due to pathology within the amygdala. And so I thought, well, we know psychopathy is a spectrum, it's a continuum. So it stands to reason that the people on the other end would be people who were super duper sensitive to other people's distress and fear, maybe due to some sort of hyperfunctioning within the amygdala. And so that's what we sought to test with the first big research protocol I conducted at Georgetown where I am now. And we recruited, I think, a grand total of 19 altruistic kidney donors, which is pretty good considering how few of them there are total, and compared them to a set of controls who were matched on everything under the sun. And we found that indeed, Altruistic kidney donors have basically anti psychopathic brains. They're good at recognizing while other people are in distress. Even ones who don't describe themselves as very empathic, which I think is interesting, do have this really strong sensitivity to it. And that better ability to recognize other people's fears seems to be linked to a stronger empathic response to people's fear within the amygdala. And they also have a stronger approach response to fear. That's research that's not published yet, but we do have it. And their to seem to be bigger than average, which the opposite is true for people with psychopathy. It leaves tons and tons of questions unanswered, but it does suggest that being an extremely altruistic person is kind of part of the spectrum of human nature. And just as some people end up really callous and uncaring, it's actually perfectly natural just to the way we know that the brain functions for some people to be genuinely, and this is what I really want people to understand is that they, there's no way to explain this pattern of research findings that makes any sense at all other than the idea that altruistic kidney donors really are unusually empathic and caring, and that is why they do what they do, right? No other explanation would explain why their brains look the opposite of people who are psychopathic. Because it's amazing how many people really just somehow distrust that it's about altruism. They think, oh, they want to get social acclaim or they're trying to make themselves feel better. And I say no, because people who are psychopathic love social acclaim and they love feeling good, but their brains look the opposite of altruists.
0: Well, I mean, humans are really unique. Yeah, there are these social creatures like bees and ants, but their altruism can be explained right through kin selection and so forth. Whereas yeah. the altruism of humans, which is just all pervasive, is very difficult to explain. I think to bring all of your research back to tie up all the loose ends, you seem to be arguing that it's a byproduct of mm-hmm. this maternal instinct that is required for altrucial development. And the alloparenting is just It's almost like hijacked, right? People know, oh, I can tap into that by putting on this face, right? As someone like Richard Wrangham would argue, we've evolved, right? We all have baby faces, right? As grownups, we have baby faces, and that's been a way of hijacking this maternal instinct. Does that mean it's sort of a byproduct, or does it get reinforced in some way through some evolutionary feedback loop?
1: Yeah, probably both. I think it is a sort of a co evolution story, and I think it is within any given culture, these forces reinforce one another as well. So the idea is that in order to have a species that, you know, can work together in complex groups as humans do, we have to have relatively strong innate inhibitions on aggression against each other and a tendency to provide care when it's needed especially because our species has these very unusual life history patterns where we have this long protected childhood where we're very vulnerable and helpless and highly resource dependent and so we think that all human groups original designs such that lots and lots of adults would help care for all the children because there's just no other way to do it. And in fact, in the very few foraging societies that still exist, we, it's normidal, sorry normative for infants to get care from lots and lots of adults. And that is what's called alloparental care, which is a really unusual phenomenon in mammals. You do see it in some complex social predators like wolves and dogs and some others, but not most primates, interestingly. And the idea is that alloparental species have to be very prepared to respond to anything that kind of reminds them of a baby, with care and inhibition of aggression. And that is how the sort of the group flourishes. And so the idea is that we had to have these things emerge in tandem. These very helpless, vulnerable appearances only make sense to evolve in the context of a species that is prepared to respond to helplessness and vulnerability with care (laughs) rather than exploitative aggression. And you can take the fact that we do have such incredibly weak, babyish looking bodies compared to other apes as almost evidence for our pro-social nature. Because if we were a hostile, aggressive species, we all would have evolved much better defenses against aggression. And then I think the idea that we're prepared to show others our fear so readily would only emerge in a species or in a social group in which showing that you were vulnerable and frightened mostly elicited care and inhibited aggression from others
0: now towards the end of the book you zoom out and make some kind of macro observations and you point out that america is a very altruistic society and that if anything altruism is on the rise and a specific type of altruism you're talking about and i guess the question is this altruism a constant are we expanding our circle of compassion and being more altruistic, or are we redirecting our altruism away from family and towards strangers? And I guess the other question would be, if it's not a constant, are there ways that we can increase compassion, increase altruism? You talk about fiction, and you say fiction is a great way. I don't know whether that was, is that selection or treatment? And you have people who read fiction are more altruistic, or at least have the capacity to understand people's emotions better. Is it a constant, or is it something that we can expand or contract within our society, you think?
1: Whether it's a constant, I don't know, because we don't measure the kinds of altruism that occur in close relationships very much. sort of large national databases about altruism almost exclusively measure altruism towards loose ties or even strangers. So have you helped a stranger? Have you donated to charity? Have you volunteered for an organization? And what we don't know is... Okay, yeah, you were helping strangers this month, but maybe that was at the expense of helping people who were close to you. Now, I tend to doubt that's true because generally acts of altruism tend to be positively correlated. And certainly, I have no evidence among the altruists that I work with that they're helping other people has come at the expense of close relationships. We actually are doing some research related to this right now just because I think it is a really interesting question. But in general, we know that good societies are societies where people help one another more, including strangers. And that is the kind of help that is not personally beneficial at all, at least in the moment, other than making you feel really good, which it does. And the fact that kind of altruism is on the rise around the world in general is a really good thing. It promotes trust. It definitely promotes well-being, as far as we can tell. And so there's no reason to suspect that's a bad thing. Now, why are people becoming generally more altruistic over time? Research that I've done suggests that in general, people who are experiencing higher levels of well-being, especially if on the latter scale, that's sort of the standard measure of well-being, which is not like how happy are you at this moment, but like how good are you feeling about your life overall? How satisfied are you with your life? And the higher your evaluation of life satisfaction, the more altruism you engage in. And this is both self-reported altruism, so helping a stranger, but it's also we find in societies where people have higher life satisfaction. They're kinder to non-human animals. They donate more kidneys. They donate more blood. They sign up for marrow registries. All these different indices of altruism go up when people report more life satisfaction, which I think is really cool Mm -hmm. because what to me that suggests is that altruism is a natural tendency that emerges when people have the resources to engage in it.
0: Economists would call it a normal good. The more income you have, the more you consume of it.
1: Yeah. And it's almost like flourishing and having your needs met release you to engage in this behavior that I think people, again, is a pretty natural behavior. In some ways, poor well-being or Mm ill-being may suppress altruism. Whereas well-being may sort of release this natural tendency that people experience. So I like that because there was this vein of research for a while that I always was a little suspicious of and it subsequently hasn't replicated that suggested that status and wealth make people more selfish. And in general, the large representative studies find exactly the opposite that generally as people report that they're doing better in life, they tend to be more pro-social, which is great because otherwise we've got a horrible Faustian bargain on our hands, right? A world in which more people are flourishing is a world in which they're more selfish. And in general, the data just don't support that at all, thankfully.
0: Some people talk about fight or flight as a kind of substitute for tend and nurture, right? Uh, These are alternative responses to stress. So that would Suggests that when there's all this kind of stress out there, and you talk in the book about how when you read the newspaper, you just read about all this horrible stuff. And even though the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff, you read all this bad stuff. Is this bad stuff more likely to elicit a desire to help? Or is it going to reduce one's subjective well-being and therefore lead one to be less altruistic?
1: I think acute stress actually can promote altruism, like acute, something terrible has happened. And in fact, it, again, it's so funny, like people love fictional stories, The Walking Dead and Lord of the Flies about how like acute stress, like a disaster, causes people to just turn on each other and apocalypse to descend. When the real life stories of, there was a real life Lord of the Flies actually, that was uncovered several years ago and was written up in a book that I'm forgetting the name of right now. But anyways, it's really happened to a bunch of boys, I think from Fiji, who were marooned on an island, a bunch of schoolboys. And what did they do? They created a little village and took care of each other and kept each other alive and managing until they were finally rescued. It was like literally the opposite of what happened in Lord of the Flies. And in actual real disasters, people do tend to respond to that acute stress with mutual care. That's different. And that again, that's an acute emotion. That's different than what happens when you're in a situation of kind of feeling like the world is a bad place. Not like acute stress, but like losing faith in other people, having a low sense of trust, being cynical, having a sense that like other people are just fundamentally untrustworthy and the world is out to get you, that's really bad for altruism. We don't want that. And I do worry a lot about what the social information ecosystems that we are progressively finding ourselves in, thanks to all the machines that we've decided to Allowed to run our lives uh, are doing to people's sense of their social fabric. I've gotten, I'm sure, like really annoying with my students about this, where I'm progressively telling them, like, this world of disembodied avatars that you spend hours and hours a day interacting with, that's not real. Those people aren't real. And make any judgments about what people are like from that environment. You are a body with a brain in it, and you need to interact with real people in the real world because. All the positive social interactions that more or less make up the average person's daily life are what creates a sense of trust, creates a sense of connectedness, creates a sense of well-being. Good social relationships are the core of well-being. That, in an ideal world, leads to a self-reinforcing cycle of cooperation, pro-social behavior, and well-being.
0: And I I think you suggest that maybe if you emphasize effective altruism, you might have to pay a price for that, because you're trying to suppress your empathic response, right? And you're trying to make it into something that's more intellectual and abstract, and that might undermine it.
1: Yeah, I and many others, I think, feel quite prescient at the moment about our suspicions about the effective altruism movements. (laughs) Like, I don't, I have no problem with the idea of people who want to help others trying to make their helpful behavior go as far as possible. I have no problem yeah. with that, obviously. But I had, I've always had some deep suspicion that some people in the effective altruism movements are a little bit misguided. And it's a pretty good month for that suspicion. So I think more people should focus on doing help they can when the opportunity arises, rather than some ridiculous kind of optimization algorithm about future millennia.
0: Well, Abby, thank you so much for joining me. This has really been great. The book is called Fear Factor, How One Emotion Connects Altruism Psychopaths, or we can't call them psychopaths anymore. And everyone in between, check it out. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much. What an enjoyable conversation. I don't often get to chat with somebody who is as knowledgeable and has such like deep layered questions as you.
0: Hopefully we'll chat again in person.
1: I very much hope so. that would be wonderful.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the unsiloed podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.